Hello there, everybody. Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues here in Central Virginia. My name is Mary Garner McGee. As you know, if you're listening live, Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. We're also podcasting as part of the TJ FM network. That's T E J dot FM. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. We're heading into a busy weekend here in Charlottesville, the last of the summer for most students from Jackson Via Elementary School to Albemarle County High School to the 21,000 UVA students that will be headed back to school this week and next. As always, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galeska. We'll also have an interview with local activist Don Gathers on the lasting legacy of the white supremacist rally of 2017. Right now, we're joined here in the studio by Charlottesville Tomorrow. Speaking of back-to-school season, today we're joined by Billy Jean-Louis, who covers the Education Beat. Thanks for having me. So I hear Albemarle and Charlottesville are preparing to spend some money on their schools. That's right. So the current situation right now is that city school students are going through several transitions as they advance from elementary to middle school because of the division's middle school model. So school officials said that that's a problem uh, they're trying to rectify. Currently, fifth and sixth grade go to Walker, and seventh grade and eighth grade go to Buford. Now, the city has approved $3 million for the planning and hiring of an architectural firm to reconfigure Walker and Buford. Under that plan, sixth grade uh, will go to Buford, and fifth grade will move down to the elementary school. And that leaves the Walker building open, right? The Walker building will serve as a centralized preschool. That preschool building will allow all children to be under one roof because right now, the current situation, the division's preschool programs are scattered across uh, all the elementary schools. What motivated the city to move 5th and 6th graders to elementary and middle school, respectively? Superintendent Rosa Atkins told me that the reconfiguration would lead to more stability because it's important to build strong relationships, not only with one another, but with adults in that environment. So what are the next steps? What does the timeline look like on this project? In doing this story, I had the opportunity to talk to Michael Goddard, who is project manager facility development for Charlottesville. He said he will start writing a request for proposal, which is also called RFP, on the first day of school, uh, which is August 21st. That RFP will call for qualified architects interested in making uh, a proposal for their services for the project. And the plan is to hire a firm by February. Could you talk a little bit about the costs? So with big projects like this, money is always going to be a big topic. The cost estimate for construction is expected by January 2021, but the school division anticipates needing about $60 million to complete the Walker-Buford project. The goal right now is to hire an architect. He or she will help answer many questions, such as how to adjust the Buford building to make another grade level that would lead to 50% increase in student population. The plan right now is to keep the schools running during the project because there will be 
logistical and cost issues associated with the closing of the schools, like needing a temporary facility. Why are these renovations being considered right now? Have they ever come up before? Gorder told me Buford has security issues. The school uh, is 60 years old. Superintendent Atkins also said that the division started talking about the reconfiguration nearly 10 years ago. But as the nation took an economic downturn, the city couldn't uh, afford allocating a large amount of money to the schools. And year after year, the project had to be put on the back burner. She also told me that Buford is an old school that needs repair. And there are several areas that really need attention in the school. The division is at a point where renovating Buford is almost unavoidable. So Albemarle County is also planning some improvements to its schools. Yeah, that's correct. So in the next three years, Albemarle County Public Schools will con- will conduct a middle school facility planning study, as well as consider uh, adding one additional elevator to its two-story building uh, as part of the division's $181 million capital improvement plan projects. Have the county middle schools previously been included in the capital improvement plan? The county middle schools haven't been part of the previous capital funding because they had enough capacity, but that is shifting. The division said Jewett and Hanley middle schools are having capacity issues and are predicted to be overcrowded. The study could begin in fall 2020, and funding for the study is being requested for fiscal year 2021. Uh, a consultant will be hired to conduct the study, which could uh, take nearly a year with the hopes of uh, getting stakeholders and community engagement. What are the goals of this study? So the divisions anticipates that the study will come up with recommendations and the school will consider those recommendations. It may be projects or grid level configuration. Uh, the other project under the capital improvement planning that will make the division more equitable is the addition of the elevators at the division's uh, two-story buildings like Albemarle, Monticello, and Western Albemarle High Schools, Burley Middle School, and Greer and Kell Elementary. What's the current state of those elevators like? So the current situation right now is when an elevator breaks down, It affects those who have a disability and rely on elevators to access the buildings. The division wants people with disabilities to have access to all buildings. And and having only one elevator might not be sufficient if a user has to travel to something, you know, on the opposite end of the school. So funding for that project is being requested for the fiscal years 2021 through 2023. Uh, Other projects in the capital improvement plan include school safety uh, improvements, a data center, Cal uh, expansion, elementary school renovations, and land acquisition. So I'll tell you this, under a separate project, though, not in the capital improvement plan projects, 55 parking spaces could be added to Western Albemarle High School by the spring. So the new parking spaces are expected to cost $400,000 and is set to be on the uh, and is set to be on the August 22nd school board meeting agenda. Now the division said it's doing this 
project to address some immediate concerns with the funding that it has available. But there's more of a long-term conversations here. To add the new parking spaces, the division will use leftover money from the $6 million science project, but adding new spaces necessarily won't meet the full need across the division. In the last 10 years, Western Albemarle High School uh, has added 100 students, and other county schools also need new parking spaces. And what's the long view on all these projects? Are Charlottesville and Albemarle anticipating more growth in their school-age population? For the city, I am not quite sure in terms of like student population, but I do know for the county, the county is expecting a growth in student population. The reason being, they're building these high school centers right now. The, the number of students are increasing. That was an initiative that took place because they projected uh, an increase in student population. So instead of building new high schools, they're building high school centers for the, you know, to respond to the to the increase in student population. Well, thank you so much, as always, for being here, Billy. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I had fun. Billy Jean-Louis is an education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. listening to Soundboard here on 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network, TWEJ.FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. If you haven't yet, check out our virtual monuments tour. We had the honor of getting to go out and record Two public historians here in Charlottesville, UVA Religious Studies Professor Dr. Jelaine Schmidt and the Director of the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center, Dr. Andrea Douglas, as they peeled back all that Confederate memory and gave us a sense of what racism went into putting up all of these statues downtown. We want to amplify all of the research that they've done, and we hope that you all will visit themonuments.org And also go take the tour. You can find information about it on the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center Facebook page. They put events up about once a month that are called Confederate Monuments Tour. But right now, it's time to follow up that hyperlocal news with some from the state level. Well, as we do each week here on Soundboard, we turn to state news and we check in with our friend and journalist over in the Richmond area, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. So today we've got a few stories to talk about. One is in education news. There has been a downturn in state SOL scores. That's the standards of learning. Take me through what this what this dip has looked like. Well, it's interesting. It's um, it's not a huge tragedy um, for the standards of learning uh, for uh, mostly high school kids, but it's kind of a um, it's it's not promising. It's not showing real improvement, and it also shows uh, the most important takeaway from it. It shows that there's a definite economic and um, racial divide. And according to these um, scores, Asian uh, ethnicity students did well. White kids did okay, slight decrease. But um, African-American and Hispanic students did not do all that well. And the big problems were uh, reading and English writing. 
um, actually um, math was better and science was unchanged from the year before. This is for 2018. So this has a lot of people scratching their heads wondering what is going on here and no really clear answers. And it's especially um, kind of interesting and timely because Governor Ralph Northam um, has wanted to somehow, um, you know, shorten the racial divide in education in the state. And this tends to show that maybe that isn't happening. Now, the some state officials suggested that, at least in some subjects, I guess there's a new policy that students don't have to take the test if they do well grades and, and get the credits for the class. Um, That's true, and that would dilute the, score, the, the good scores. But anyway, I mean, the thing is, there are a lot of theories out there, none of which is really viable yet. Uh, some people say it's, there are a lot of new people coming into the, into the state who may not really be up to speed on English. Other people say there's too much, there's a lack of discipline and too much uh, distraction by bad acting students in the classroom. And it's just that, you know, the state, frankly, just hasn't, you know, there's still enough segregation in the school system so that um, mostly Hispanic and black students are not enjoying any improvements that other people might enjoy. And so there are a lot of people forming groups to study this to see what it means, because if it's a trend that, you know, you can't say it's just good for the state, it's good for the kids, it's good for everyone to have a good education. And if Virginia wants to, you know, keep its reputation as a high-tech state and all that, it better do something. Yeah. It's interesting to me with stories like this how how the reasons suggested are almost always sort of filtered through whoever's ideological lens is who's talking, right? Um, Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. And... uh, there are all kinds of questions about this that really haven't been answered. Yeah. They just go on from year to year. Well, and speaking of year to year, I mean, the achievement gap and the opportunity gap between racial groups in Virginia and, and in mm-hmm. America is, is not a new story. I mean, that's that's been around for a very long time. Oh, well, of course not. But but it's actually slightly worse on this year's SOLs, even with all that yeah. attention paid to it. And also, I mean, against this backdrop, you have the whole kind of um, white supremacist, white nationalist, uh, Trump-related uh, you know, send them back kind of uh, rhetoric that's very ugly. And um, this isn't going to help the, that, that situation at all. Yeah. Well, let's turn to another story here. Uh, you wrote in Bacon's Rebellion this week about an a economics professor at George Mason University, long-tenured professor um, who's kind of gotten himself mired in a small bit of controversy about Amazon. Uh, take me through what's going mm-hmm. on. Well, it's kind of an interesting piece. It's actually the Post broke it, um, you know, recently. And um, Steve Fuller is an economist who specializes in the Virginia economy and the, the you know regional Washington economy, basically. And he has his own institute at George Mason University, which was funded a lot by Dwight Char, who is a big uh, home builder in the area. And of course, I don't know how relevant directly this is, but you know, George Mason has received a lot of money from the Koch brothers, and has sort of identified itself as a economically conservative, uh, libertarian, free market advocating kind of place. So anyway, um, what happened was that Fuller Amazon uh, was due to, of course, building this huge new headquarters, East Coast headquarters, right close to Reagan National Airport. Amazon had been promised $23 million in incentive from Arlington, and the Board of Supervisors was to meet. So then Amazon went and contacted um, Fuller and asked him to write um, a piece about the economic development uh, benefits of the plan. I don't know why, but he showed it to Amazon before he submitted it. So then he went to the Washington Business Journal, Fuller did, and without really telling them, they went ahead and published it. 
And then it's just been raised all kinds of questions that um, that I've seen over the years, uh, and not just in Northern Virginia at all, but here in Richmond and, and everywhere, where you know someone's pushing for an economic development project, and they have go-to economists who will write pretty much what you want to. And, and this is very common, and it's something that's really not healthy because you've got to know the truth about these projects before you start putting in millions of dollars of public money to help them. Virginia never seemed to shed this, this kind of you know backroom, you know, not exactly transparent way of doing doing things. Well, and and like with so many things, it seems like you can follow the money, and that may even apply to academic centers. Well, that's true, and I mean, I mean, frankly, UVA is constantly cons- cons- uh, criticized in the. Um, among the conservative talking group as being some kind of training school for Bolsheviks. There's nothing wrong with having a conservative or liberally focused school so long as the, the money's transparent and there's there's plenty of open debate. But I mean, we'll just see. This is just sort of a curious, weird kind of situation though, up in George Mason. Well, speaking of curious, weird situations in Northern Virginia, I want to talk about uh, the 25th anniversary of the end of Disneyland, Virginia. <laughs> this oh, is yeah, a story, right, right. story that we read this week about uh, a sort of ignominious anniversary. Um, I guess Disney at one point was planning a third giant theme park up near Bull Run in Prince William County, and it uh, was officially abandoned 25 years ago this month. Uh, take me through the right. story. Sure. I wasn't. I was actually in in Europe, um, in Russia, reporting for a magazine at the time. So I, I don't have any really firsthand knowledge about it. But I do remember. Um, this is, goes back to ninety three, ninety four, that time frame, and Disney was then um, had been undergone a renaissance as a corporation with Mike Eisner, the CEO, and Eisner had you know revived the movies. That's when you had things like The Little Mermaid and uh, Lion King. And Aladdin coming out that were really new new kind of movies. Uh, Eisner also had, had put a, 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 a Euro Disney, a Disney World in uh, Europe, which didn't do so well. And there's a lot of controversy there. Then they pitched one on America in Manassas, which, of course, you've got, you know, the first Manassas battle, the second Manassas battle during the Civil War. And around, it's not too far from Spotsylvania and a whole bunch of other battlefields. I mean, that was really one of the chief bloody grounds of of the war. And to sort of come in with a kind of a, you know, what kind of history are you going to teach people? How are you going to handle, you know, a place where people want to go and have a great time like they do at, say, Disney World in Florida or Disneyland in California? And there are a lot of people in the area who really just said this is an existential problem and raised hell about it. And um, so then what happened, there was a lot of gnashing of teeth, and then Disney withdrew. And I saw, you know, Ed Ayers, UVA historian, he said, you know, a quote along the lines of, you know, the idea of replacing something real where battles actually took place and where we can grapple with that history and replacing with something manufactured and Disney-fied is, is not something he could support. You know, that's interesting you bring up Ed Ayers, who used to be the president of the University of Richmond. I did an interview with him for Style Weekly once when we were doing a big package on, you know, Richmond 200 years during, after 150 years, excuse me, after the um, well, end of the Civil War. And I interviewed Ayers, and I said to him, I asked him, I said, I said, if you're a tourist, say, in Charleston, South Carolina, and you go downtown there, he said, you'll see all kinds of, you know, Confederate memorabilia, like little Confederate flags and swords and whatever, and they're sold openly like trinkets, and you don't see that in Richmond. And he says, well, there's several reasons, because there weren't that many real battles in South Carolina to begin with, besides of, you know, Fort Sumter, and a great deal of bloodshed happened in Virginia 
And it's just, it's really something that people don't really want to make light of and market. So, and also had a lot of, there's just so much baggage. I mean, it's just like Williamsburg, colonial Williamsburg. And what version of history do you represent? That of rich white people or... You like have you know African Americans who are slaves and how they how is their point of view represented? These are big questions, and Disney promised they'd do it in an historically accurate and tasteful way, but you know it just didn't fly. Yeah. All right, Peter. Well, we now have a Virginia with no Disney, and instead we got Amazon going in next door up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see. You. I'm not, I don't know how to respond to that. Take Peter. care. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TJ FM Network, TEEJ.FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Many of us around town this week and weekend have been reflecting on the second anniversary of the white supremacist rally that took place here in our hometown two years ago. We're going to do a little bit more of that with Don Gathers, a community activist and a deacon at the historic First Baptist Church on West Main Street. So today's August 12th. You've been involved in a whole bunch of stuff around the the second anniversary of August 11th and 12th. What's it mean for the city right now? Just another opportunity for us to uh, to remember, to try to reconcile the events of that day two years ago, and uh, to try to, as much as possible, move forward. Still very much a difficult task because that, that, that scab and those scars are very much still uh, fresh and evident. And um, as soon as we begin the process of trying to heal, something happens to rip the scab off again. Take me through what what some of that moving forward and reconciliation would look like to you. A huge step would be um, having some concrete definitive uh, decision on the statues. Being held in limbo for so long has just been detrimental, I think, to the community. And and if Judge Moore would... uh, would make a decision, um, and I understand the legalese and the, the the timeline that's required for all of this. I get that, but it's just drug on much too long now, and I think that um, a decision one way or the other will will not bring closure, but at least prepare people for the next steps as to what what has to be done to to again bring about the process of trying to heal this community. Beyond the statues, you know, there's there's a lot of talk about reconciliation in, in some more deeper and, and structural issues. Where does the city, where does the community start with that? How do we get there? We've got to begin to rebuild or establish the trust between the community and the police department. We've got to uh, get some, some real concrete discussions going about affordable housing. We, we, we've got to hold developers accountable and, um, and, and, and help the, the, the citizens who need it the most. Uh, we've got to do a much better job with the, the residents of our public housing communities. We, we, we need to uh, 
try to bridge the, the, the wealth disparities and the, uh, the income disparities in this community. There's just a, a plethora of things that we need to address that all stem from that same poisonous tree of, of, of race and racism. You mentioned a moment ago about uh, whenever things start to get better, the, a scab gets gets picked off. What are some of the steps that people have been trying, and, and what are these scabs? Well, I mean, you, the the events of, of just a couple of weekends ago in, in Dayton, Ohio, and in El Paso, and those types of things just continue to manifest themselves all across the country. And um, it, it very much puts people right back on alert. And, and God forbid that, that something of that magnitude or of that nature would happen here. We've certainly been traumatized enough with the events of, of August 11th and August 12th and even going back to July and May of that year um, with the, 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 the initial Tiki Torch rally by, by uh, Richard Spencer and the, uh, the Klan coming again, marching through our, our fair city. And those type of things are, are burned and seared into people's memory. You, you can't unsee that stuff. Um, so it, it, we, we've got to figure out how to uh, how to get across those those hurdles. But with the, the the constant dog whistles and racist tweets that keep coming from that dude in D.C., that's my reference to him because I, I won't dishonor the office of the presidency by referring to him in that way. And that's just me personally. But as long as we continue to have to fight those battles. It's a fireman's nightmare. Every time you put out one fire, two more pop up somewhere else that you got to go and deal with. And, I mean, that's, that's what keeps us from, uh, from moving forward as a community and as a country. You know, I've been in Charlottesville about eight years or so, and it, it is a very Democrat voting town and, and certainly a, a, at least thinks of itself as a very liberal town, you know, sort of smugly so maybe. Mm-hmm. Yet we still have a lot of these things that haven't changed. Yeah. Why is that? Um, I think that people like to uh, portray this town as something that it's not. The evilness that descended on us on the, on that weekend a couple of years ago, it, it was here for a reason. It didn't just come into town that day. Those, uh, those undercurrents were, in, were, were pinned in the underbelly of this city long ago. This country was very much founded on, uh, on, on a racist ideology, and um, you can see all of the, the aspects of that throughout this, this community. Jefferson actually has two plantations here. He has Monticello and he has UVA. And, and they represent very different aspects of, of what this country was built on. We, we can't ignore what these, uh, these people who we refer to as the founding fathers of this country, what they actually stood for, and the lies that they told that continue to, to be told and continue to be taught here. The Declaration of Independence, which they say was penned by, by Jefferson, says that all men are created equal, yet blacks were considered three-fifths of a person. So you, you either didn't consider all, all men to be equal or you didn't consider blacks as people. And there's no balancing that. So until we start to, to embrace the, the real sordid history of this country and of this, this community as a whole and, and start to tell those stories full and free and truly, we, we can't move that needle of progression at all forward. I mean, the, the story of American history often feels like ideals that are really powerful and still resonate that extraordinarily flawed men predominantly 
didn't live up to. Mm -hmm. And the story of things like the civil rights movement is trying to move toward those ideals. Mm -hmm. What do we need now in Charlottesville to get there? Um, a modern-day Martin Luther King would be wonderful. Continuing the, um, the progression that, that we have made, uh, the election of, uh, of Nakia Walker was, and, and her ultimate appointment as mayor was a huge step for, uh, for this community. And we just need to recognize that and embrace it and, 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 and continue to, to, to try to embody efforts along those same lines. There's much that needs to be done to, uh, to help this community and to heal this community. And we need serious people and serious-minded people with serious progressive agendas in order to get us there. I remember seeing Holly Edwards, former city councilor, talk, vice mayor at the time, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, saying essentially, I'm going to summarize her quote, but that you know, here in Charlottesville, you know, black folks are, are welcome to be the entertainers. They're welcome to come hang out and be, be socializing with, with, uh, with white folks and even go to school together. But when you start talking about economic power, everybody shuts up. Mm-hmm. If somebody's heard this interview and says, you know what, I want to take a step and actually start doing stuff to help out, where would you recommend people plug in? The first thing I would say is, is find what you're passionate about. Figure out your own niche and, 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 and how, to, uh, how to attach yourself to that. There's plenty of room in that proverbial foxhole, and there's plenty of work to do. And everybody's not called to do the same work. So I say just figure out where your, where your passion lies and, and, and work out from there. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Until next week, my name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Chioga Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or at our podcast home at TEJFM, T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.